gotten a handout yet. There are a series of them on the table there. I am impressed that I'm sufficiently intimidating that nobody has taken the front pew yet. <clears throat> that does salve my reputation to a degree. I am deeply humbled by the fact that none of you are in the front row. <laughs> All right, let's uh, bow in prayer, shall we? With hearts which are blessed with more than ever the blessing that David could have projected or received, Lord, we thank you in the name of him who is the son of that king but the Son of God above all. This child become a man, become a redeemer for us, an intercessor at your right hand, one who would fold us down into his own royal life as a shepherd of the eschatological Israel God. How unworthy are we all and he should deem us worthy of his life, let alone his very death. And we rejoice in his resurrection and ascension and in the gifts that he's poured out upon us, what treasures of love and grace and humble servanthood it is that in him which we would be united to most of all, even at this season of the year when we remember how far he lowered himself to serve us. So encourage us, <clears throat> O God, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and to realize that we serve a Savior who came not to be served, but to give his life a ransom. Bless us now as we reflect upon this part of your inspired word. <clears throat> we wait upon you and upon your spirit for illumination and understanding. Through the name of Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. Amen. Before we examine Second Samuel 5 and 6 this evening, I would like to take one more glance at the murder of Abner by Joab in Second Samuel 3. I direct your attention to a remark of David about this incident from his deathbed in 1 Kings chapter 2. Verses 5 and 6, as well as a remark about this incident by Solomon upon his accession to the throne in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 31 to 33. So if you haven't anticipated me, please turn to 1 Kings 2, 
And let's look first at verses 5 and 6. Now there you see David commenting upon the incident of Job, Abner, and Amasa, which we haven't looked at yet, and giving instructions uh, to his uh, son, to Solomon, in verse 6, not to let the gray hairs of Joab go down to the grave in peace. In his reflection upon this wicked deed, David confirms some of what we noted last week. Joab shed the blood of war in peace. No Asahel death in self-defense during a civil war was Abner's murder. Rather, he was killed when he had come in peace. Hence, David at last, on his deathbed, acknowledges what was evident to us, that Joab wickedly put the blood of war on his belt and on his sandals. David finally demands the penalty of equitable punishment for Joab. As Joab gave no peace to Abner, but rather gave him blood murder, so Joab is to have no peace, but rather blood death by execution. Justice does take Joab. Life for life, even if it is a little late. Solomon confirms his father's sentence while adding some reflections of his own in this same second chapter of 1 Kings, verses 31 and 32. You will notice that he responds to Benaiah, who has been to the temple or tabernacle and has found Joab seizing the horns of the altar as a place of asylum or refuge. And Solomon instructs Benaiah to take him and remove him from that spot, even by executing him there in the tabernacle precincts. Notice what Solomon says. He specifies that Joab shed blood without cause, verse 31, and that Abner, the son of Ner, was more righteous and better than Joab. Please note that here is the ancient king of wisdom, Solomon, the ancient king of wisdom, revealing the righteous character of Abner vis-a-vis Joab, which is not to say that either of them are without guilt or sin, but in this circumstance, Abner more righteous than Joab, as we indicated last week. 
And again, here is the ancient king of wisdom, Solomon, declaring that Joab's killing of Abner was unjustified, not based on any righteous cause, neither self-defense nor an act in a just war, nor an accidental homicide. But instead, Solomon, king in wisdom, declares that Joab killed Abner in an act of premeditated murder, without just cause, an act of homicide against a man more righteous than he in the circumstances. Once again, justice takes Joab. Solomon ratifies the sentence of his father, life for life, even at this late date. Notice that the narrator of 1 Kings understands the significance of symmetry. Despite the emergence of chinks in the armor of David, which we observed in 2 Samuel 3 last week, namely his inability to judge and execute righteous judgment, not the last time David will not do the right thing, he will not do the just thing, we will see him act this way again, egregiously in a number of instances later on in 2 Samuel. And despite the inconsistency of David, which we observed in 2 Samuel 4, he sentences Rechav, Rechav and Beana to death for cold-blooded, premeditated, malice aforethought murder, while he does not sentence Joab to death for cold-blooded, premeditated, malice aforethought murder. Despite David's inability and despite David's inconsistency, despite the shadow of the downward spiral which begins to cast its pall over this sinful shepherd king, David's immediate narrative spiral is upward in the next four chapters of 2 Samuel. So let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now our narrator moves through a series of upwardly moving spiral narratives in this fifth chapter here, David establishes his political capital. Next, in chapter 6, he establishes the religious sanctuary for the nation. And the upward spiral continues to progress upwardly. He establishes his dynastic succession in chapter 7, by God's favor, one of the most important chapters in the entire David narrative. And finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, he establishes the Davidic Empire, 
with its extensive range, range that gave the reputation to the golden era of Israel's monarchy under David and Solomon. So, in spite of the chinks in the armor which have begun to reveal themselves in chapters 3 and 4, nonetheless, the ascending narrative of David is towards the increase of his establishment as both a political and religious leader, as well as one who is favored by God's covenant with the house of David and the expansion of his kingdom to its greatest extent, to the border of Syria and to the border of the Sinai. All right, having noted the general paradigm or development of our narrator over the next four chapters, we begin with verse 1 of chapter 5. What do you notice there about that verse that uh, may uh, reflect or may suggest uh, continuity with the previous narrative? Hebron, very good. And what do you call that when we have a word that appears in the first verse of one chapter, which is also a word in the last verse of the last chapter? It is a hook word. And this hook is tying location together. In fact, you'll notice that that hook word in 4.12 goes back to 4.8, I mentioned last week that 4, 8 to 12 is a little bracket unit uh, 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 linking Hebron and the uh, execution of those assassins there. But now, uh, in chapter 5, our narrator wants to relate location by hooking it to where David has been and developing something out of that location which is new Namely, the doublets between verses 1 and 3. And you will notice the similarity in the opening of both of those verses. All X of Israel came to David or the king at Hebron. So we have lines which are symmetrically parallel of Israel's tribes and Israel's elders coming to David at Hebron. Therefore, the link or the hook with the previous incident is to keep the spotlight on what's happening to David at Hebron because it is something dramatically new. What is it? What do they do to him? Hadn't he been anointed there before? Over Judah Judah before, but now? Over all of Israel. Now you see the conclusion of what is rounded off by chapter 4 with the end of the house of Saul is followed by this anointing of David by all Israel, including those that 
Abner had brought, namely the tribe of Benjamin, which was the ancestral family of Saul. We saw that in chapter 3. So the point of this uh, dramatic parallelism here is to underscore the newness of David's elevation to all of Israel as monarch and rightful king without any contestation. No complications anymore. Nobody denying him the throne or the crown that God had given to him as long ago as 1 Samuel 16. And in that symmetry of verses 1 and 3, we sandwich verse 2. And what is being emphasized there in that second verse? Why was he the rightful king? They recognized what the Lord had said, that he would be uh, ruler over his people. God had done what to David? Anointed him. Anointed him? Come on, give me a Calvinistic word. Ordained. Elected him, correct. God had elected him. There's a good Calvinistic word. He had chosen him to be anointed. Yeah, you're right about all of that. He had chosen him to be anointed. So here is a sandwich emphasis, namely all Israel is now ratifying or confirming God's electing choice of David. And notice how they do it with three significant verbs. You led Israel, you shepherded Israel, you ruled Israel, or you will or are to do it. And in each of those clauses, in the final, in the Hebrew text, the final word in the clause is Israel. Israel, 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 because all the tribes of Israel have now come to anoint him. And you don't think this narrator is a genius. He drives it home to you by the fact that David led Israel. David is shepherd of Israel. David is ruler of Israel. All of Israel now under the leadership, shepherding care, rulership of David from Hebron. All right, now let's think about this shepherd motif, particularly um, in a biblical, theological, or redemptive historical paradigm. Um, B-T-R-H on your outline means biblical, theological, redemptive, historical. Here in Second uh, Samuel Here in, in 2 Samuel 5, 2, we have the reflection upon David as a shepherd. Now, this is not the first time where we've had David recognized as shepherd. When had we had David recognized as shepherd before? When we first met him, when we first met him in what chapter? 
of what book? First Samuel. What chapters? 16. First Samuel 16, where he is shepherding his father's flocks in Bethlehem. All right, so here he's being described as a shepherd, and that's reflecting back to 1 Samuel 16, when he was a boy shepherd uh, uh, taking care of his father's flocks in Bethlehem. Now, there's going to be one more place in this 2 Samuel narrative where we're going to find David referred to as a shepherd, and that's in 2 Samuel 7, 7. We haven't had it yet, so we're going to look ahead to David as shepherd. In other words, the historical David is described as a shepherd in a number of present, past, and future historical contexts here in uh, this unit. All right. Now, this motif of David as a shepherd is rehearsed Rehearsed in later Revelation, particularly in Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71. The psalmist who wrote this psalm is obviously writing after David's historical era, and he rehearses David's shepherding role. He remembers the past history. Right now we know that from the historical David, who is now dead by the time the psalmist writes his psalm, psalmist looks back to the past and rehearses by remembrance what the historical David meant to Israel. He was the shepherd of the people of God. The next is the projection. The projection of David by the prophets. And let's take Ezekiel 34 verses 22 to 24 as an instance of one of the prophets projecting a future historical David into the prophetic future. So we have the historical David remembered Time past, and we have the historical David as a paradigm for projection into time future. And where do we come for fulfillment? What passage? John chapter 10, exactly. John chapter 10 is the fulfillment, the completion. of the Davidic motif with the eschatological shepherd. 
the eschatological shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the protological David and the eschatological David are linked on the line of history. Notice, the historical David that we're examining as we look at 2 Samuel 5, who is remembered as a historical figure passed by the worshiping community of Israel in the Psalter, who is then projected into the uh, historical future by the prophets, not as if he's going to come again, not as if he's going to be raised from the dead. That's not the point. The point is that the prophets project one like unto him, who will even be greater than he is, as we'll see in a moment. And Lord Jesus Christ uses that motif to draw himself into the complete fulfillment of the Davidic paradigm, which means that there's going to be another David on a millennial throne in Jerusalem, right? See, when we say, good, when we say eschatological David, we mean once and for all David is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be a future aspect of the Davidic story, prophetic or otherwise, which is yet to be accomplished in a millennial kingdom, in a millennial city, in a millennial era. Otherwise, the sufficient fulfillment of Christ of the Davidic material is uh, qualified, compromised. And that just won't do. It just won't do. Jesus doesn't present himself in that way. He presents himself as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings. He does that in Luke 24. He goes right through all the three parts of the Old Testament canon, and he says, they speak of me. I am their complete fulfillment. I am their complete accomplishment. There is no greater David than I am. I'm the end of David. All right, so you are once and for all sufficiently delivered from any temptation to pre-trib premillennialism or even post-trib premillennialism because you're not looking for a future millennium. As Rich said, we're already in it. It's nunc millennialism, which is Latin for now. Now millennialism. We're nunc millennialists. We'll nunc them. All right. If you want to, you want, it's not nuke, it's, well, nunkum. If you want me to spell that for you, nunk, which is the Latin word for now. The millennium is now. Which is better than saying amillennial because then it sounds as if you, you don't believe that the millennium is anything at all. And so you have to explain, well, yeah, we believe it, it's now. So just say you're a nunk millennialist and that'll get you more discussion anyway. <laughs> all right. I'm basically tracing the pattern on the line of history here. Right now, let's take let's take this eschatological shepherd motif. Let's take this motif and talk about it in terms of 
heaven and heaven's revelation of it. Okay? That is, the vertical penetration of this concept, namely an eschatological shepherd, into the line of history. So I have to draw two charts here. This is one which is looking at the theme on the line of history. Now we want to look at how this theme of the heavenly or eschatological shepherd comes down into history. And we want to begin with Genesis 48.15. Where Jacob says that God was his shepherd. God was his shepherd. And then in Genesis 49, verse 24, where he's giving his final blessings and benedictions, he talks about a shepherd arising from Jacob, Israel. Now we notice that what has been revealed to Jacob is the shepherding that God himself provides and that this shepherd is going to uh, come out of the line of Jacob Israel, out of his own line. <clears throat> this eschatological shepherd then who is revealed from heaven is revealed to Jacob in measure, in principle. He sees it afar off. He grasps this eschatological shepherd as he grasps God himself and the promise that that shepherd will arise from his own descendants. In grasping it, he trusts it. He believes that shepherd promise, that shepherd revelation. Okay, This is the revelatory, this is revelation coming to him. And he embraces it, lays hold of it, leaves it by faith. Now, David, as a shepherd, also receives this revelation of this eschatological shepherd. In fact, in, in accepting the fact that he is named the shepherd of Israel, he is himself participating or being joined to that revelation that attaches him to the eschatological motif. He himself is laying hold of this eschatological shepherd. In Psalm 78, the worshiping community is laying hold of that motif because the Davidic shepherd theme is uh, revealed out of the eschatological shepherd theme, which comes down out of heaven by revelation. In other words, this this is connecting the worshiping community to the heavenly or eschatological shepherd who is to come. And what would we say of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Surely we see it there. Surely we see it there because the psalm itself ends with an eschatological thrust. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord who is my shepherd forever. So this, this dramatic heavenly character of this great shepherd of the sheep who is going to come 
is weaving its revelatory story from above, that is, from the vertical intrusion, it's weaving its way through the history of redemption, from the law to the prophets, here are the former prophets, to the writings, the Psalter, to the latter prophets. We've seen Ezekiel. Ezekiel is not the only one, but notice Ezekiel is receiving that same promise out of the eschatological arena to John 10, where Jesus himself is the incarnation. He is the embodiment of this heavenly eschatological shepherd. He is that shepherd in the flesh. In the flesh. And notice what Jesus magnificently does. He combines this with this. With this. God is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. David the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. All right. These two outlines then amount to a horizontal and a vertical interface. So at every point where we see this shepherd motif, we are seeing a line of historical development or unfolding, which is at each point penetrated by the revelation of the heavenly eschatological shepherd in measure. No, Jacob doesn't see it as clearly as we do. Neither does Ezekiel. But nonetheless, it is there. And it begin, and it continues to unfold in its greater dramatic uh, 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 penetration and, uh, and, 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 and enthusiasm as uh, the Old Testament believers grasp him by faith, even as we grasp him by faith as uh, having come in the fullness of time. So, uh, any questions or comments? Here is a here is a way of taking this motif and working it back through the history of redemption, working it back and working it forward through the history of redemption and seeing it in two vectors. You see, see it, seeing it in the horizontal or, or historical and seeing it in the vertical, which is the revelatory. God is revealing himself as a shepherd. Christ is revealing himself as a shepherd, even back here in Genesis, here in, in the Psalms, here in David's life. He is displaying himself there. And those who have grasped it by faith uh, uh, enter into the fullness of that, which is the reason that we can say, as Reformed believers have always said, that salvation is always by grace through faith in every era of the history of redemption because it is the same gracious revelation that is received, perceived, and embraced. However dimly, Nonetheless, it is grasped. That's Hebrews 11. That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Talking about the eschatological aspect of faith. How faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. Jacob had the evidence of things not seen. Substance of things hoped for. The eschatological aspect of faith. His faith grabs hold of that eschatological shepherd. He embraces him. So he has what we have. 
He has the Christ of the promise. He has the Christ of glory. He has the Christ who has come. He has the Son of God by faith. Because his faith lays hold of the heavenly Christ, even in the Old Testament. Same with Abraham. Same with uh, Isaac, same with Jacob, same with Moses, same with all of those that are in that list. They lay hold of the eschatological aspect of faith. It's not the forensic aspect of faith. It's not the sanctifying aspect of faith. It is the specifically eschatological aspect of faith. And therefore, to make those figures in Hebrews 11 models for life is to bastardize that passage and completely misunderstand it. They are not on that list because they are to be imitated. They are on that list because they drive you to the eschatological Christ, which is where they were taken. Their faith laid hold of the invisible substance of Christ, even though they never saw him. Abraham, going out looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, laying hold of God himself and his invisible city. Even as we believe in that wonderful Jerusalem, the golden, which is revealed in Revelation 20 and 21, Abraham laid hold of that. By faith. Belong to that city. As Paul says, the citizenship, citizens of, a, of the heavenly city above. Citizens of the, of the heaven above. All right. Well, at any rate. Um, well, uh, uh, let's ask any questions if you have any. Or if not, then we'll move on. Or any observations or comments you want to make. On the inversion of the motif, I comment on the inversion of the motif. Uh, look at my sermon called The Shepherd Lord on Kerux on Psalm 23, in which I uh, try to make the point that the psalm is prophetic because it can only reach its accomplishment if there is a shepherd who will become the lamb, one who will reverse the paradigm in order to reverse it for salvation. Uh, it's the same thing that Paul's saying when he indicates that uh, that uh, God uh, made him uh, the contradiction of Jesus endured the contradiction of sinners. In other words, he has to take the obverse of the of the character of the shepherd in order to uh, perfect and perfectly complete what the shepherd must bear in reversing his own role. The shepherd becomes a lamb so that the lamb can become a resurrected shepherd who will never be a lamb again. Which is another thing that is so unconscionably uh, uh, out of sync to think that in a millennial kingdom there will be a temple sacrificing lambs with a lamb of God on one end of that millennial 
temple avenue, sitting on his throne, looking down that broad street to the temple at the other end of that avenue, and there are going to be priests slitting the throats of lambs in that millennial temple. What? The Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, who once and for all, how many times does the writer of Hebrews say, once and for all, he paid, once and for all. We're not Roman Catholics. We're not putting that body back up on the cross and taking it down every time we say the Mass. Once and for all. And yet you're going to say in the millennium, they're going to be killing lambs with the Lamb of God sitting on the other end of the street? It don't compute. It don't compute. But they've got a way out. No, they're not propitiatory sacrifices. No, they're not expiatory sacrifices. They're commemorating the sacrifice he made. Well, that is a cheap, cheap exegesis. Baloney. Somebody else had their hand up? Not you again. You can ask me at home. We want to hear the answer. Go ahead. So, uh, in a sense, then, Jesus uh, not only is the vertical, but he's the horizontal. He is not merely the shepherd who intervenes, but he becomes the sheep for all history. Right. He becomes the shepherd and the victim. It is interesting, though, that in Revelation, he is not featured as a shepherd. No, he is not. Uh, the lamb motif is there, but not the shepherd motif. Yes, yeah, Scott? I was wondering, on, on Hebrews 11, uh, your point is excellent as far as the, the Old Testament saints being the centrality of Christ. Are you also intending to, uh, would you acknowledge, though, that there's secondarily, in, that there's a connection in Christ between us and them, so that secondarily, their faith is represented in the people of God now as we look ahead to the heavenly city. Yes. Uh, 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 their faith is uniting them to the same Christ our faith unites us to. But it is not faith as an exemplary characteristic. It is faith as a participative characteristic. They are being united unto him, but they are being united unto the eschatological aspect of his dramatic work. Remember, the first verse defines the quality of faith. There's nothing in there about justifying faith or forensic faith. It's not that the writer of Hebrews doesn't believe in justifying or forensic faith, but he's not talking about that there. The faith has this multifaceted aspect to it. Just like any woman's wedding ring has multifacets to it. Another comment? Yes, Mary? In Revelation 7, 17, you have the lamb and the shepherd come together. It says, the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Now, that's one I even missed. My concordance even missed that. Thank you. Well, I think that the lamb has to be featured. 
Yes, the, the imagery there in Revelation, of course, is picking up on these motifs. I'm just surprised. I had thought I had combed my concordance looking for shepherd in the book of Revelation. I hadn't found it, and there it is. <laughs> Somebody's got a better concordance than I do. Okay, uh, go ahead, Rich. I'm not denying that, but I'm looking for the actual word because you know, the the word is in all of these elements here. Okay, well, um, I'll, I'll answer anything else at the break if you wish, uh, but let's go on here with chapter five and notice the dates that we uh, have given in verses four and five. Uh, David is 30 years old, and he reigns for 40 years, so he dies at age 70. When does he, uh, when does he come to the throne? Now, we gave this a long time ago, so I'm testing your memories. Uh, it is final exam week next week, and since you won't be present for that, then I'll give you your final ahead of time. Um, does anybody remember what date we gave for David to begin it to begin ruling as king? Ten ten, approximately ten ten or ten eleven, and this is a date on which most all uh, Old Testament scholars agree, liberal and conservative alike. There's generally no argument about this date. All right, so he reigns forty years, which means he reigns till when? 970, 971. So Solomon begins to reign in 970, and he reigns 40 years, so he's going to reign to 931. And what is very important about Solomon's reign is that in his fourth year, okay, his fourth year, which is 967, his fourth year is the 480th year out after the Exodus. And so in 1 Kings 6 1, we have a date for the Exodus, which makes it 14. 47, 14, 46 B.C., when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. So we've got a number of important dates coming out of uh, Samuel and Kings. <clears throat> All right, so David reigns from uh, 1010 to 970. How long did he reign in Hebron? Seven years. So he's there from 1010 to 1003, <clears throat> approximately. And then how many years in Jerusalem? 33, so 1,003 to 970, 33 years in Jerusalem. 33 years and uh, six months, uh, actually, <clears throat> total uh, total reign. All right, so we've got our parameters. As a ballpark figure, uh, <clears throat> I say to my students, think of David as 1,000 B.C. Okay, you're close enough, all right, except for my exam. It has to be right on the money, but nonetheless... After you're done with my exam, you, to, to give yourself an, a, a date that will orient you. Okay, so David is 1,000 B.C. That means that Samuel's before that, Samson's before that, Joshua's before that. If you get the date of the Exodus, 1440. So Moses is about 1400 B.C., and that means that Abraham is before that, and Abraham is about 2000 B.C. So you got Abraham 2000 B.C., David 1000 B.C., 
and then the destruction of, Israel, of Jerusalem in 586, and then Jesus comes in essentially first century A.D. All right. A big, a big uh, paradigm so that you can kind of orient yourself around uh, uh, some major figures. All right. Now, the next scene in this chapter, verse 6, is not in Hebrew. In verses 4 and 5, our narrator has already projected the reign of David, though he's not in Jerusalem in verse 5 yet. So Jerusalem there in that fifth verse is proleptic. He's anticipating not only the next narrative, but he's anticipating the rest of David's reign. But it does transition him. As you can see, the hook word in verse 5, Jerusalem, and the hook word in verse 6, it transitions him to this next narrative, which is centered in Jerusalem. And in this unit, we must take a look at structure. First of all, the structural relationship between verses 6 and 8. Notice the phrases, notice the phrase that is duplicated in those two verses. Can you pick it out? Nope. Nope. The blind and the lame in verse 6, and then the lame and the blind in verse 8. It's chiastic reversal. So we have a frame again, verse 6, as the blind and the lame, verse 8, the lame and the blind, and it sandwiches verse 7, where David is mentioned twice over in his stronghold in his city. All right, I want to come back to this blind and lame motif, but I also want you to notice some other parallels. Uh, Someone had said not come in. That is duplicated in, uh, that's reversed in verse 9, where David does live in. It's not actually come in, but at least he is in the city. Verse 7, we have city of David, and in verse 9, we have city of David. So we have a number of symmetries in this unit. What does David mean, or what do the Jebusites mean by the blind and the lame? What's the point of this comment? Very good. It's a taunt. It is a taunt. They are scorning David's attempt to enter Jerusalem, or Jabesh, as it was called, the city of the Jebusites before it was called Jerusalem. They're uh, contemptuous of David's attempt to take their city, and they say even the blind and the lame can keep you out. They can fight you off. The presumption of the Jebusites in taunting David with this, uh, with this scorn which is the reason David turns it on them in verse 8. He says that the lame and the blind will be no opposition to him, because whoever strikes the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who contemptuously and scornfully seek to keep me out of this city. David is not literally saying that he's going to make war on the lame and the blind. He's just turning the taunt back on them. In other words, they've thrown it at him, he throws it back at them. 
Now, who gets into the city and how does he get in there? All right, here's where we need the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 6. We have a duplicate narrative of this incident with some variations. And actually, it's like the synoptic gospels. We learn a little more about the career of Jesus as we read the three synoptics. Well, with comparing Second uh, Samuel and First Chronicles, we find some additional details in First Chronicles 11.6. We are told that Joab is the one who goes up the water shaft and through that act takes the city of Jerusalem or allows David's soldiers to take the city of Jerusalem and earns the right to become the commander of the army. This is a commando raid. Okay, David's army is trying to get into this uh, fortress city, extremely, uh, extremely secure. And if you look at your map, uh, you have a diagram of the water system of Jerusalem uh, in, the, uh, in the city of David, uh, both in David's time and in Hezekiah's time. Forget Hezekiah's tunnel and the Siloam channel. But uh, you will notice the Warren shaft system, that very small piece on the right-hand side. Warren's shaft was discovered in the 19th century by a fellow, by a British uh, uh, excavator or archaeologist named Warren. And it is now being excavated again because they are finding out that it is much more complex than Warren himself realized or when it was first discovered. In fact, they are going to build a visitor center over it and allow people to go down inside it, building access to it. Well, the Warren shaft was built by the Jebusites in order to get water from the Guyon Spring, which, as you can see, is on the other side of their wall. You notice the perimeter of the wall of the city of David. Below that perimeter is the Guyon Spring, and you could go from inside the city by way of Warren Shaft down to a tunnel that could get you to the spring so that you had water when the city was under siege. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't die of thirst. You could get, get water up into the city uh, because the spring was outside the wall, but nonetheless there was a tunnel which enabled the Jebusites to get there. Joab found the tunnel and he climbed up the water shaft and entered the city and was successful in leading his commandos into uh, the <coughs> Jerusalem, what became Jerusalem, and taking it on David's behalf. Yes, I need it. Yes, they, they actually walked down into through this tunnel or through this shaft to a place where they could... It used to be thought they could lower buckets into the water. Now they believe that there's actually a platform that they stood on and it could actually take the water out of the spring. That's still being discussed because, as I said, uh, what was thought about this shaft in the 19th century is now being changed because of additional archaeology that's going on around this site right now. So it's, it's, it's a bit of flux as to, you know, all the details. But the basic story is it was a tunnel way to get to water without your enemy knowing, uh, you know, where you were going. And how Joab found out that that's where they were going, uh, you know, we're not told. But he figured it out somehow and uh, climbed up with his other allies, with his other soldier comrades, and took the city from inside. Not quite the Trojan horse, but... Yes. Is that is that the official 
it is well they can't prove it but of course that's the suggestion that if he got inside this is how he got in because Hezekiah's tunnel wasn't built for 300 years Hezekiah is about 700 BC and the Siloam channel is also later so this Warren shaft is the oldest at least they think it's the oldest in fact now they believe it goes back to 1800 BC it was there long long before David uh, uh, ever ventured, or Joab ever ventured uh, into it. All right, now, uh, one more note here uh, in this uh, unit, verses 6 and 8. Uh, notice the mirror reflection. <clears throat> in verse 6, David is excluded. Notice the phrase, you shall not come in. In verse 8, David excludes, the blind and lame shall not come in. So the mirror reflection also confirms the fact that David turns the taunt back upon the Jebusites. Now the next little uh, symmetrical bracket or parallel is in verses 9 to 11, where David built all around him from Milo and inward, uh, in our first uh, lecture this uh, semester, back on uh, back in September in First Samuel 16, you'll notice, you may remember that I pointed out that that Eilat Matsar, the archaeologist, believes she has found this um, building where David began to build. And in verse 11, Hiram builds a house for David. <clears throat> so the building activity. <clears throat> is symmetrical in verses 9 and 11, David and the king of Tyre. And notice what is sandwiched in verse 10. The Lord God of hosts was with him. Now we've had eschatological shepherd theology in verse 2. Here we have Emmanuel theology. God with him. This is the season of God with us, Emmanuel. Here is God with David, with the protological David. And that is bracketed also by verse 12, for God establishes and exalts David's kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God once again with David, although the expression is not there, nonetheless the reality is there. More Emmanuel theology in verse 12. He exalts the kingdom of David. All right, well, let's take our break, and then we'll come back and deal with the harem.
Die increase of David there in uh, verse 12 and the increase of his kingdom and then the listing of uh, fruit of his harem and in verse 4 Solomon is listed and Solomon's mother is anyone? Bathsheba. In fact those four that are listed there or Bathsheba's children, though her name does not appear. Her name does appear in the list of the four in First Chronicles 3, 5. All right, so notice the pattern. Uh, David comes from Hebron in verse 13, and, uh, and he has his uh, children listed, his sons listed here in chapter 5. It was the same pattern that our narrator used in chapter 3. David at Hebron gets stronger and his, his uh, wives and sons are listed in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. So we have another symmetrical pattern, only this one is uh, centered in Jerusalem. <clears throat> chapter 3 was centered in Hebron. This one is centered in Jerusalem. David grows stronger by the increase of his family, both at Hebron and in Jerusalem. The peculiarity of this list in chapter 5 is that none of the wives are mentioned. Only the sons, and many of the sons we know nothing about <clears throat> except their names. All right, now, the uh, next thing to notice here is that with the coming of Hiram and the exaltation of David's kingdom, the nations begin to be attracted to Israel, <clears throat> attracted to David, and the wealth and influence of the nations, even the power that the nations exercise uh, comes to Israel, including some of their culture and their harems. Israel asked for a king like the nations, and now David begins to deliver. And some of what David begins to deliver is going to have <clears throat> ironic and tragic consequences, particularly in the reign of his son Solomon. <clears throat> but uh, Israel was warned about this. That when a king would come, then he would want all of the kingly types of attributes and culture, etc., that come along with it, including the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. <clears throat> David begins to attract that. Now, <clears throat> in the end of this chapter, we have the final symmetrical indication <clears throat> of our narrator in which he demonstrates two rounds of war with the Philistines. Now, you have a map in which those uh, campaigns are diagrammed, but I want you to uh, note that your map has mislabeled the lines. The dark black lines are actually not Israelite forces. Those are the Philistine uh, uh, insurgents, and the dotted lines are uh, David's uh, forces uh, in a response. So uh, keep that in mind as you look at that map. But the point to note is that these are two victorious campaigns of David over the inveterate enemy of Israel, namely the Philistines. And you may recall that the Philistines had uh, campaigned against Israel and had harassed them uh, from before the time 
of uh, David. Here, David, once and for all, in duplicate, emphatic duplicate uh, style, <clears throat> puts an end to Philistine oppression. In verse 25, and as you look at your map, the dotted line, the dotted black line at the top is David driving the second uh, group of Philistines back into, uh, toward Gezer, <clears throat> just back over the border of uh, Philistia. Uh, verse 25 is the last conflict or confrontation between Israel and the Philistines. Uh, if you look at your concordance, you won't find the, you will find that Philistines do not trouble uh, Israel anymore after David defeats them. <clears throat> now in verse 19, David is inquiring of the Lord. Notice that we have pointed out in verse 10 that God was with David, and now David is with God, inquiring of the Lord in both verse 19 and 23, the reciprocal relationship between God with us and we are with God. <clears throat> it is as emphatically true that God has come to be with us, and we have come to be with God as a result. We are his children. We belong to him. He looks upon us as his delight because he has given his son for our salvation. And he, <clears throat> he delights in us because he enjoys the fellowship with us that we enjoy with him. Verse 20 mentions this breach at Baal Perazim a breach by which uh, uh, perhaps waters broke out against the Philistines at that location, perhaps a flood. If you notice the uh, site of that in the valley of Rephaim on your map, uh, that valley could easily have been flooded, and potentially David is mentioning uh, <clears throat> something that occurred by a flood of water in that verse, it's uh, it's not exactly clear, but it also reinforces the motif of going up the water shaft in Jerusalem to conquer the Jebusites. So the water motif may be duplicated here in a uh, in a way which is not as clear as uh, we would like it. Uh, this incident here in verse 20 is referred to by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 28:21, he recalls this event and projects it as a pattern for God's coming to break forth in his breach of his wrath at Mount Perazim, which is the same location as Baal Perazim. Now the difficult verses 23 and 24, and I say difficult because it's very hard to understand the Hebrew here. Uh, the word that is translated in verse 23, balsam trees or mulberry trees, as it was in the old King James, <clears throat> whatever uh, uh, type of shrubbery you've got there, is <clears throat> it is a hophox. Uh, now, uh, a hophox, a hophox is a once only word. It's actually hapox legomena in Hebrew, in Greek rather, uh, but we shorten it to hapox. Uh, this word here in verse 23 only occurs once in the Hebrew Bible. And when you have a word that only occurs once, it's, you're, you're groping for what it means because you have nothing with which to associate it with. 
But whatever tree it was, notice that David is instructed to go behind them. He's to come from the rear. In the first conflict at uh, Perazim, uh, David seems to go flat out, head on, against the Philistine enemy. Here God instructs him to come at them from behind and to attack them from the rear. And uh, he is to wait in verse 24 until he hears the sound of marching. Marching? What marching? Marching of the Philistines? Why is he to attack from the rear and not head on? Why is he to go behind and wait until he hears some sound of marching? Yes, it is the Lord Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord God of hosts, the host of the army of heaven. So he is to wait until he hears the marching of God's hosts in the uh, balsam trees or whatever trees they were, and that will be his signal to strike from behind. All right. And as he does so, as we indicated, he drives the Philistines uh, out of uh, Israel, Judah, and gives uh, gives his nation uh, peace from that uh, from that enemy on their west. Any questions about chapter five? All right, moving on to chapter six. We once again have two narratives, as we had two narrative units in chapter 5. These two narratives feature David, the ark, and another principal character, Uzzah and Michael. We meet Uzzah for the first and last time. Michael, whom we have met before, also appears for the last time. In David's story, the narrative drama here features David's reaction to actions of those principal characters. The drama in both incidents revolves around the ark. So the focus of our narrator's narrative symmetry is the ark of the covenant. In this chapter, you will note that the narrative drama of each incident results in God's blessing. The Lord's blessing being an explicit symmetrical refrain in both cases. And that symmetry is matched by the similar reaction of God to the actions of the principal characters. Uzzah and Michael, a divine reaction which features death in both instances. Sudden and immediate death in the case of Uzzah, the slow ebb of a childless wife's life as it drifts inevitably towards death in the case of Michael. 
The last word of God on the daughter of Saul in verse 23 is death. The final word of God on Michael's life is death. We never read of her again from 2 Samuel 6. Michael is dead. And in that, she resembles Uzzah. Our narrator's symmetry returns. Since the ark is central to this chapter, what is the ark? What is it? It is a box. What kind of a box? It is a wooden box covered with gold. With cherubim. All right. All right. It has something more than cherubim. What else does it have? What's the mercy seat? It's the lid on the box. All right, so we have a box, gold-covered. It's a rectangular box, four feet long, two and a half feet high, two and a half feet wide. Okay, <clears throat> has a lid on it. It's called the mercy seat, or in Hebrew, it's called the kippurim. The kippurim, from which we derive... Yom Kippur. Or what do they do on Yom Kippur? David on Yom Day in Hebrew, Kippur, Atonement, Kippurim, the lid of the ark. What do they do on the day of the atonement? They sprinkle the blood on the Kippurim. They sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat so that Israel's sins are atoned for. Kippurim, Kippur means atonement. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> we have this Kippurim, or lid, or mercy seat, and attached to the mercy seat, what do we have, Margaret? The cherubim. <clears throat> okay, they're on either side of the lid, facing each other <clears throat> with heads bowed and wings extended. All right, what does the box symbolize? What's the symbolism of the Ark of Neat box, nice gold box, Got fancy angelic figures on it, <clears throat> pretty gold box. Once a year you get to see it, or at least once a year the high priest gets to see it. What's the symbolism of this box? Footstool of God. The footstool of God. All right. Anything else? God meets with his people, not really at the ark, at the tabernacle or temple itself. <clears throat> Pardon? I'm thinking of the box itself. I'm not thinking of the room it's in. I'm thinking of the box itself. We've had a suggestion that it is God's footstool. What else is it? That is true, but it is referred to... No, it is referred to as his throne. As his throne. All right, where he is enthroned between the cherubim. 
or enthroned above the cherubim, depending upon how you translate the Hebrew preposition. In Psalm 80, verse 1, in Psalm 99, verse 1, and in Isaiah 37, verse 16. Now, the reference to the fact that the ark is God's footstool is in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, and in Psalm 99, verse 5. Notice that in Psalm 99, verse 1, it is called God's throne. He is enthroned between the cherubim. And in the fifth verse of that very same psalm, it is called his footstool. The parallelism, the symmetry returns. So that the ark is a symbol of God's enthronement between the cherubim as his footstool, namely as if his feet rest upon the mercy seat. Okay. Now, what is the origin of the ark? In the wilderness, whose era? Moses' era, what chapter? All right, that's a dirty trick. (laughs) Exodus 25. All right, so it arises out of instructions given by God to Moses to build the ark in the wilderness. And the next time we meet the ark is in the era of Joshua and the conquest of the promised land. Where is the ark in Joshua? Carried across the Jordan, right? Or opposite Jericho, that is correct. And where do they place it after they get into the promised land? Does it stay in the Jordan River? No, it doesn't stay in the Jordan River. Where do they place it? Okay, take your map, which is the last map you have. Where do they put it? Bill, where do they put it? They put it in Shiloh. Joshua 18, verse 1, and Joshua 19, verse 51. All right, so the uh, ark has moved from the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. It is placed at Shiloh. After the era of Joshua, what era do we have next in Old Testament history? The era of the judges. And where is the ark in the era of the judges? It is also in Shiloh. Judges chapter 18, verse 31. So it has remained in Shiloh for a period of 300 years. The period between Joshua and the end of the judges. Who are the last of the judges? Samuel and before Samuel, Eli and Samuel are the last of the judges. Where is the ark in the days of Eli and Samuel? It is still in Shiloh, correct. As 1 Samuel opens with the career of Eli and Samuel, Samuel, in fact, is called by God. Out of uh, the out of being in the temple uh, tabernacle precincts at Shiloh, First Samuel one three, and First Samuel four three. All right, then what happens? Who captures it? The Philistines capture it. First Samuel four eleven. Where do they capture it? Notice your map. 
at Aphek. They capture it at Aphek and they take it to Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, 1 Samuel 5. They take it to three of the five Philistine cities of the Pentapolis. Then, what happens to it when it is in Philistia? Yes, it becomes a curse, doesn't it? A curse in several ways. Not only Dagon falls on his face, but something smites the Philistines. Uh, whether it's what the King James suggested they were, we will leave aside. Then, to Beth Shemesh, because the Philistines want to get rid of it. So they put it on a cart drawn by a couple of young cows. And it wanders across the border of Philistia into Judah and arrives in Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 6.12. And what happens in Beth Shemesh? Nope. Bill? Yes, 50,000 Beth Shemeshites uh, look into the ark and they are uh, executed by God for trespassing uh, on uh, the holiness of the ark. And so it is now removed from Beth Shemesh to Kiriath Ya'adim in 1 Samuel 7, 1. Now, Kiriath Ya'adim, which is on your map, is the same as Baal Judah in 1 Chronicles 13.6. They are the same location. All right, that's the journey of the ark to this point. David wants to bring the ark from Kiriath Ya'adim up to Jerusalem, up to the city which he has now made the center of his capital and uh, and has had a palace built for himself. All right, now let's notice a couple of things about some bracket elements in this chapter. Uh, notice in verse 20, the speech of Michael to David is bracketed by the words himself. The king of Israel has distinguished himself today, shamelessly uncovers himself. David's speech in return in verse 21 is bracketed by before the Lord. It was before the Lord, therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22 contains a bracket as well. I will be more lightly esteemed. I will be distinguished. All right, so in uh, the end of this chapter, we have some significant uh, symmetrical bracketing. In 1 Samuel 4, the two Philistine battles over the Israelites led to the capture of the ark and signal the end of the house of Eli, the famous Ichabod line in 1 Samuel 4.21. In 2 Samuel 6, we are looking at the consequence of two Israelite victories over the Philistines. Notice the reverse vector. Two Israelite victories over the Philistines, which leads to the removing of the ark and signals the end of the house of Saul, the definitive end of the house of Saul. The death of Uzzah disturbs David's victory parade. How can the ark come to me? Notice the personal pronoun there. Hmm. 
What are you doing with the ark, David? All right, well, we'll leave that aside, and let's ask what Uzzah is doing. What was wrong with reaching out to steady something that looked like it was going to fall off? Which one of us would not have done the same thing if it's teetering on the brink? Very good. Very good. There are two issues here. All right. Not just one. There are two issues here. Exodus 25 verses 12 to 15 indicate that the ark is to be moved. How, Margaret? With poles, correct. It's to be carried on poles, uh, pushed through the uh, ring brackets on the corners of the ark and carried on the shoulders of the priests. It is not to be carted by oxen. Numbers chapter 4, verses 15, 19, and 20 indicate that no one is to touch it on threat of death. Uzzah is actually contemptuous of the Lord's ark. He violates two principles of Mosaic law in reaching forth his hand. And so, as we look at our Reformed principle or our Protestant principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, scripture we look at 1 Chronicles 13 and 1 Chronicles 15, which also talk about this incident. And in 1 Chronicles 13.10, we read, Because he put his hand to the ark, he touched it, Uzzah was struck dead. And in 1 Chronicles 15.13, Because you did not carry it. So, Uzzah <clears throat> receives the consequences of presumptuous Contempt, contempt of God's commandment. The death of Uzzah is blessing to Obed-Edom and is the occasion of gladness to David and all the people, verse 15, except Michael. Everybody rejoices that the ark has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and therefore it appears as if God's breach against Uzzah. Notice the breach against the Philistines in chapter 5, the breach against Uzzah in chapter 6. Notice everybody is celebrating except the one framed by a window. Not the first time she was framed by a window, Is it? When she let David down from a window in 1 Samuel 19, 12, she is framed by the window as a helper. But now the window frames her how... She hates David. She's contemptuous of him. The window frames her 
in isolation. She's behind the window. She's not out in the crowd. She of all, verse 15, all the people who are celebrating the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem, she is behind the window looking out and not participating in. Even as she will be isolated by God with childlessness, he will not allow her to look in to maternity. Michael's character here is displayed in its fullest revelation. We see her for what she has always been. She is a royal blue blood. She is called the daughter of Saul in this text. Notice what our narrator does. He reminds us of what she is very much conscious of, that she's got royal blood in her veins. And this king who is my husband is acting like a common lowlife tramp. Dancing in front of this box where no king would humiliate himself to do such a thing. No real royal blue blood. My dad wouldn't have done this. And so she describes him as having shamed himself like the maidservants. He has reduced himself to the level of the slaves in Israelite society. She sees him humiliated with the riffraff of Jerusalem culture. She's not just sneering at him. She's degrading him. She is reducing him to less than the king that he has been anointed to be. She is doing exactly what her father did to David. She will not recognize his role. Unless it puts her on a seat next to him on a throne. And then she'll come back to David because she gets elevated and she gets treated like a royal princess again because she's the king's wife. But if he expresses his exuberance at the Lord's ark coming to rest in his capital city, she is contemptuous of that ark as she is contemptuous of that king. Michael disappears from David's story because we've had the fullest display of Michael's character throughout David's story. She has ever been an opportunistic predatory female looking 
for what will advance her. Not looking for what will glorify God and advance his elect and anointed king. She despised him. She despised him. And David, with her rebuke in front of him, as notice verse 20, she finally comes out. She doesn't call him into the house and privately deliver this sting. She goes out and blasts this before the whole audience. It is a public humiliation. How arrogant she is to stand in broad daylight and dress down her husband by humiliating him out of her hatred. David turns her contempt into blessing. He has been before the Lord. Nothing, she says, can crush his exuberance or his spirit. She, he has been lightly esteemed by her or humbled in the eyes of the maids of Israel, and he will be even more humbled because the Lord and his ark have come to rest in the city of David. What is more important than the praise or contempt of his wife is the glory of God. David is not discouraged nor destroyed by his wife's insult. He is driven to declare the presence of the Lord in his life. And I will continue to be before the Lord, regardless of what you say. Regardless of how you try to cut me down or degrade me, I will continue to be lightly esteemed because God is my glory. He is the center of my life. You are not. Not even you are the center of my life. And therefore, do your worst. I will still be before the Lord. David's joy in coming up to Jerusalem is tempered and sobered. It is sobered by sudden death and it is sobered by a contemptuous insult. But that joy does not destroy. That, that, uh, that joy is not destroyed. 
It is not destroyed because God has been with him and continues to be with him to bless him. The blessing that came to the house of Obed-Edom is obvious to David, as David himself is blessed before the Lord in coming to Jerusalem at the head of the ark. That blessing is fully ours, more fully than David knew, because Christ has blessed us in the heavenly places. And there is everlasting blessing indeed. No humiliation, no insults, no contempt, no despising, but everlasting love and affirmation and welcome to my throne room. Come and sit at my footstool, says the Lord. Any questions or comments that you may have, Pete? He didn't talk about the nakedness. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's naked at all. I think the ephod covers him. I think what she does is she shames him with it because he is less than garbed in terms of his royal demeanor. I don't think he's naked. He, he takes the ephod and covers himself. I think it's a part of her uh, degradation of him. You see, she's saying that because he doesn't have his royal garb on, he doesn't come up in kingly robe, okay? He's just taken the ephod to cover himself, all right? Therefore, he is less than what he ought to be in terms of his royal dignity. And so she calls, she, assert, she accuses him of being naked when, in fact, he isn't. She's na- naked of his royal garb, hmm? but not naked, uh, com- not, not completely naked. All right, that, that's my reading of it, and it's based upon the fact that he does take the ephod, as the text says. Kristen? Uh, David, in uh, verse 8, 9, and 10, with negative descriptors there, David becomes angry at mm-hmm. God. Yes, uh, the, the anger is uh, parallel to the anger of God in verse 7. Notice, it is actually the same Hebrew word, so he's reflecting it. But I think he's reflecting it out of a little bit of peak, right? Namely that, you know, why did God do this to me when I'm bringing the ark, you know, verse eight, verse 9, how can the ark come to me? I, I, I didn't elaborate on that a great deal because I don't want to push it too far, but I think there's a little bit too much of David's ego in this triumphal parade here. Uh, the fear is a righteous fear. I mean, this is a fear of God's wrath, and that is a proper uh, reverential fear. Uh, and the fact that he doesn't move it, he said, well, if, if this is what happened now, you know, I'm not going to move it any further, which I think was an appropriate response because he probably should have thought about how it was supposed to be moved in the first place. But uh, nonetheless, leaving it at that household where, where God turns it into blessing, then David realizes that a God's anger is past. Yes, Margaret? Um, do you think no one 
Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that they had. <clears throat> In other words, I think that whenever it was moved, it was moved properly on the staves through the rings. <laughs> that's a good that's a good point uh, no I don't think it got on the card by the stage so, it, so uh, now you're raising the question how come somebody else that tried to touch it uh, or did they just take it uh, from the cart that it was on and bring it further I don't know uh, the text is silent so I, I can't speculate any further than that yes Anita they had put it on a cart before it came to Beth Shemesh, yes. And whether it was still on the same cart, it just hadn't been unloaded, I, you know, I don't know. The text doesn't say. Robert? Uh, is this urban legend, or have you heard that uh, a school at MIT actually rebuilt the ark, a replica of it, exactly to specs, and it, they finally had to destroy it because it became a gigantic capacitor building up static electricity? I have not heard that, Robert, and that's that sounds too much like Raiders of the Lost Ark stuff to me. <laughs> but 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 all of you uh, um, Googlers, uh, you're gonna want to go Google and see if they can confirm that. Yeah, Kristen. Oh, I think we do. Well, okay, so what? I mean, is it destroyed because of the presence of the Lord? Oh, I think Nebuchadnezzar did what he did to all the other treasures of the temple. He stripped them and took the gold back to Babylon. So I think he took the gold from the ark and took it back to Babylon or took the whole thing back to Babylon and stripped it there. Now, the Coptic church in Abyssinia, I think they've got it. They've got it in a box in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. But they won't let anybody see it. So, of course, uh, that remains a myth, unconfirmed. So could they, could they do that to it? Could Nebuchadnezzar do that to it because the presence of the Lord had left? Well, the curse, the curse had judged Jerusalem, the temple, and uh, Judah. And therefore, the curse would, would uh, not strike anybody else beyond that because it had already struck Israel. So the curse, curse motif has been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple and the carrying off of the treasures. And it's interestingly that in the second temple, the Jews did not rebuild an Ark of the Covenant. In the temple of Haggai and Zechariah, about 516 B.C., uh, after the return, they do not place another Ark of the Covenant. Even as after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, they have never attempted, the Jews have never attempted to sacrifice again on the site of the temple. Why? Well, God won't let them. No. <clears throat> um, there are in Hasidic Jewish communities, particularly Passover time, particularly in uh, ghettos, uh, Harlem and Chicago and other places, you'll hear chickens squawking on on uh, Passover morning because there are some very devout Jews who are sacrificing chickens in their backyard. Um, their, 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 their realization that blood is necessary for forgiveness of sin. But because they don't have a lawful place, which is Jerusalem, to sacrifice, then they have, with, they, they have withheld sacrificing ever since 70 A.D., 
It's almost as if they recognize the need for a central sanctuary, a sanctuary which has identification with the city of David and don't realize that that central sanctuary is now at the right hand of God in heaven. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, John chapter 2. Jesus is the eschatological temple. 70 A.D. is a ratification of that. Well, this is our last meeting for several weeks. We will resume, Lord willing, on January 7th, first Thursday of the new year. I wish you a happy 2010 and a Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thank you.